step number one is this, Jim. However you section physical reality, you take the physical universe as you see it, however you slice it down to its minutest form, the fact of the matter is you end up with a physical entity or quantity that does not have the reason for its existence in itself. Ultimately, the physical universe reduced in any form cannot explain its own origin. It has to find its explanation outside of itself, which means the first explanation of a universe as we see it has to have something that is non-physical as a first cause. So you've got a kind of a haunted universe without knowing what the first cause is. Next you come to the argument for what we call not from design, but to design. And that's what I said, if you walk onto a planet and see a wrapper of a McDonald's hamburger and see letters of an alphabet, you immediately know that there is information there. And logic tells you, Jim, as it tells everybody listening, where you see information, you assume that prior to that information is a mind. You don't just think that Handel's uh, Hallelujah Chorus came together or that the dictionary developed because of an explosion in a printing press. There is sequence to the whole thing. And if you take, Jim, just the com composition of the enzyme in the human component, the enzyme, which is the building block of the gene, and the gene the building block of the cell, the possibility of the human enzyme coming together by random, says Vikram Singhi, professor of applied mathematics at Cardiff in Wales, the possibility of that happening by chance is 1 in 10 to the power of 40,000. That's more than the number of atoms in this universe. That's amazing. It is, it is, it is time-wise and mathematically, the possibility is zero. So I say to you, number one, the physical quantity cannot explain itself. Number two, there's intelligibility, which assumes a prior mind. Number one, in the first case, there is something non-physical. Second case, there is something intellectual or a mind. And third, in the history of society, human experience, and history itself, you begin to realize that the moral issues, the social issues, and just human intercourse demands the explanation of a moral reality. So you've got a first cause that is spiritual, a first cause that is mind, a first cause that needs to explain morality. You take these three struggles, Jim, and pause with me for a moment here. There are four fundamental questions in life. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. You take these four questions and these three explanations needed, and only God is big enough to explain this universe. We're here tonight to talk about the cosmological argument. Um, and before we dive into it, I want to uh, do two things by way of introduction. Well, three things, really. First of all, just to show you how much I wanted to be here tonight, I had the opportunity to go to Citizens Bank Park tonight and watch the Phillies play the Braves. And I gave up that ticket because I'd rather be here with you talking about this. Okay? And I, I'm an introvert. I only have one hobby, and it's the Phillies. You rank higher than the Phillies. Isn't that good to know? <laughs> you do. And it helps that the Phillies are five games up with only ten more games to go. So, <laughs> I want us to get oriented um, to where the cosmological argument falls in the grand sweep of apologetics. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed up to this point in our first two sessions, a subject like this, you can get lost pretty fast. 
and uh, Jason and I are going to try to slow down a little bit and um, leave plenty of time for questions and so forth. But it's easy to, to lose the forest for the trees in a subject like this. And so I want to make sure that we're properly oriented as we look at the cosmological argument. Does anybody not have an outline? You'll want one of those uh, to follow along. Apologetics, the branch of Christian theology that seeks to give rational explanations for the truth claims of Christianity. And we said that there are two broad areas to this discipline. First of all, there's the positive or the offensive apologetics in which the Christian apologist seeks to set forth a positive, affirmative case for the truth of Christianity. Um, And so you might read a book like Why I Am a Christian by John Stott, in which he will make the positive case for why he believes Christianity to be true. It's offensive, not offensive, offensive or positive apologetics. And then the other broad division is negative apologetics or defensive apologetics. And as the name would suggest, that's where you're actually defending the truth claims of Christianity against those who would dispute it and dispute their truth. And so you might, whereas you might read on the one hand a book called Why I Am a Christian by John Stott, you might on the other hand read a book called Why I'm Not a Christian by the famous mathematician and philosopher of the previous century, Bertrand Russell. I had to read that book in seminary. And it's really not all it's cracked up to be, quite honestly. It's not that good of a book. But in uh, this negative type of apologetic, we're responding to the arguments we often hear. Hey, what about the problem of evil? What about the hiddenness of God? What about uh, the, the problem of biblical criticism, contradictions in the Bible, things that aren't scientific in the Bible, uh, religious pluralism? Do you really want to make the case, Tim, that your way is the only way? It's your way or the highway. And so we're on the defense there, playing defensive apologetics. Now, within that first broad division, positive apologetics or offensive apologetics, we introduced you to two subgroupings of positive or affirmative apologetics, and they're there in your outline. Um, Both of these have their place, and both of them have strengths and limitations. Now, I'm not going to re-present that whole message from the first night, simply to say that the two broad divisions of offensive or positive apologetics are, on the one hand, classical apologetics, and on the other hand, evidential apologetics. Classical apologetics, or what's sometimes called natural theology, in, in that approach, the Bible is not used. An appeal is not made to Scripture. Rather, an appeal is made to simply what we see around us, what is built into the natural world, hence the term natural theology. And this actually, this approach actually has biblical warrant. Psalm 19, verse 1 and 2 Uh, David says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. In other words, uh, in a sense, says David here, the universe that God has created is talking to us. Not verbally, but just looking at it, you should intuitively know there's something here. There must be something behind the something that's here. There must be a cause for that which is here. Um, Paul, in Romans chapter 1, said something similar. He said, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen through what has been made. So here again, in the New Testament, looking around natural theology, all of nature is saying something to us. And the, the subdivisions of classical apologetics, there are four famous arguments, four classical arguments. One is the cosmological argument, and that's the one we're going to look at tonight. And then the teleological argument, the argument from design, 
the anthropological argument, the argument for morality, the reality and the existence of morality in this world suggests uh, a moral lawgiver behind the moral law. And then finally, the ontological argument, and that's the most cerebral, difficult one, and we'll take, uh, we'll take some time to do that and explain it as simply as we can. But the cosmological argument that we're going to follow, or that we're going to look at tonight or introduce tonight, falls right here as one of the main arguments of classical apologetics. Proponents of classical apologetics today would be guys like R.C. Sproul at Ligonier Ministries. I'm sure some of you have heard of his name, R.C. Sproul, and William Lane Craig. Actually, William Lane Craig does the second type very well as well, uh, evidential apologetics. And that's where we present the Christian, that's where we do use the Bible. But in classical apologetics, we do not use the Bible, and we do not use the Bible for a very, very specific reason. And I'll get to that in a moment. Now, I should, somebody asked about this, so I should probably bring it up here. There is actually a third type of apologetics, and that's something called presuppositional apologetics. And we're not going to introduce that at all for a while, just as, so as to not to make this overly complex or sophisticated. But uh, basically, presuppositionalism is what we do every Sunday morning. Presuppositionalism is what we do every Sunday morning. We start with the Bible and we say, given that the Bible is true, now let's listen to God's word and align our lives to it. That's presuppositionalism. We start with the presupposition, hence the term, that the Bible is true, and from there we argue, or from there we proclaim, or from there we interact with uh, cultured despisers of the faith. Okay, so just set that aside for a moment. The cosmological argument finds its way into the whole mass of this discipline as one of the arguments that is a subset of classical apologetics or natural theology, okay? That's its orientation. Um, And we're starting this study in classical apologetics for a reason. Um, Maybe you've heard of C.S. Lewis's famous journey to Christian faith. He started out as an atheist, But then he moved, he was persuaded that God existed, and he said, in his testimony, he said, God is God. And so he went from an atheist to a theist, not yet a Christian, but somebody who believed in God. So he made the journey from atheism to theism, and then he took one more step. He was persuaded by not only the classical apologetics, but the evidential apologetics on top of it, and he made that final step to saying, Jesus is Lord, and he came into the kingdom. In his words, the most reluctant convert in all of England. Okay, and and there's a reason for that. We won't get into that tonight. But that was his journey. He went from classical to evidential, and that's where he made his statement, Jesus is Lord. In England, a couple years ago, another famous British atheist, Antony Flew, for many, many years was a rabid atheist, and he made mincemeat out of Christians and debates. But late in his life, he was actually persuaded by that second argument on your list, the teleological argument, the argument from design, the argument that says the the universe is fine-tuned and and seemingly ordered to sustain human life, and that must have a designer. If you see a design, there must be a designer. And Anthony Flew's testimony was that he he likened it to a cell phone that was intricately designed. He said the cell phone, obviously somebody made it. Well, the universe strikes me as having been made by someone. Call him God if you like. And so Antony Flew, a famous British atheist, went from atheism to theism. Now, sadly, I haven't heard that prior to his death, he made that final step that C.S. Lewis did. I haven't heard that he did. Don't know if he did or not. Only God knows that. But you see the journey from atheism to theism. Often the journey from atheism to theism is through a classical 
apologetic. Um, and again, notice the cosmological argument is a subset of classical apologetics. And so tonight, we're not going to appeal to Scripture to make our argument. Now, let me ask you, why in the world would we do that? Why would we take the living Word of God, which we believe to be so powerful, and just set it aside? What's with that? You've got to be crazy, Tim. Why would we do that? Talk to me. Why in the world would we do that, Josh? Excellent. For the sake of those listening on the podcast, uh, Josh is basically saying as soon as you start quoting the Bible, they say, I don't believe it. And so you've got to start further back. You start quoting chapter and verse, well, that's the Bible. I don't believe that. That's your presupposition, not mine. Okay, good. It is, do you see the merit? That's essentially why anybody would do this. Just set aside the Bible. We haven't forgotten about it. In fact, the Bible itself allows us to take this approach because of natural theology. Psalm 19, 1 and 2 and Romans chapter 1. So I think Josh hit the nail on the head. There are some people, as soon as you start quoting the Bible, the conversation's over. Forget it. I don't buy it. I don't believe it. Do you know the type? Maybe you were once that type. So, um, it's interesting to me, and maybe as you've studied Scripture, you've noticed this. When Paul goes into the synagogue, when the Apostle Paul goes in the synagogue to share Christ with people, they already share a common history and a common presupposition that the Old Testament Scriptures are, are true. And so Paul launches off from the position of, hey, remember the promises God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Well, Jesus is the fulfillment of all those promises. He starts as late in history as Abraham. But when Paul goes to a a Gentile area, a non-Jewish area where there is no synagogue, and he's looking at pagans, and he's trying to convince them of the truth claims of Christianity, he doesn't start with Abraham. Because they don't have that as a foundation. They don't have that as a common presupposition. Where does he start? He starts all the way back with the unknown God, Acts 17. And he's talking about the God who made the world and everything in it. They don't have a common shared presupposition of Old Testament Scripture, so he doesn't start there. He goes all the way back, and that's his launching point. And he begins with the God who, whereas Paul, when he goes into synagogue, he, he introduces Jesus as the promised Messiah. When he goes into Gentile ter- territory, he introduces Jesus as the incarnated God, the God who became part of his creation. That's a different starting point altogether, but it always gets to Jesus. Paul makes sure of that. So, how do you even start a conversation with people who don't agree with your presupposition that Christianity is true? Uh, Presuppositional apologetics says, just start preaching the Bible. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, so get the Word of God out. And there's something to be said for that. We do it every single morning here at Fleetwood Bible Church. But then, on the other hand, classical apologetics says, start where the people are and then build on it, meet people where they are, and then add to it. First, demonstrate the theism is plausible. Belief in God is plausible, reasonable. And then add to that all the Christian evidences that support the truth claims of the New Testament. So, um, there's something to be said for that too. And we sometimes do it when we are engaging the cultured despisers of the faith. So, as Paul did... Let us go back to creation and look at the cosmological argument. 
Now, let me stop there and, and see if we're all together. Did, did we lose anybody? Are we okay? And, and don't be ashamed. To say, I, this is heady, cerebral stuff. And if you're not well caffeinated, I know how it is. <laughs> um, are, we, are we all together so far? All right. Um, what do we mean by argument? I've used that word several times now. What do we mean by a good argument? Um, I, I think it's important to keep in mind that in an apologetic context, argument does not mean quarreling or fighting. Um, I had an argument with Sonia last night and I slept on the couch. That's not what we mean. And, and no, that didn't actually happen. I see you smiling. <laughs> um, I had an argument with an atheist and I shot him between the eyes. No. <laughs> an argument is simply giving reasons for why we believe that God exists. And this, by the way, Peter said, as we saw a couple weeks ago, Peter said, do this with gentleness and respect. That other person you're talking to is made in the image of God. And shooting somebody between the eyes because they don't see things your way is not doing this with gentleness and respect. Now, technically speaking, an argument is a series of statements called premises, premises leading to a conclusion. An argument is a series of statements called premises leading to a conclusion. And there are basically three conditions for a, a good argument. If you're going to make a good argument, it's got to meet three conditions. First of all, the argument has to be logically valid. I think I have this in your notes for you. The argument, first of all, has to be logically valid. In other words, its conclusion must follow from the premises according to the rules of logic. The classic example that is given in almost every introduction course to philosophy or theology um, or logic, if, every, if you've ever had a logic course, those are interesting. Um, the, the classic example, you always start right here, it goes like this. All men are mortal... Socrates is a man, therefore, Socrates is mortal. All men are mortal, that's the first premise. Socrates is a man, that's the second premise, therefore, Socrates is a mortal. Now, that would be a valid argument. Do you see how that follows? That flows logically. It doesn't violate any known laws of logic. Because if all men are mortal and Socrates is a man, one man is a subset of the whole, and if they're all mortal, well, then one man in that set is mortal. Okay, that, that's a logically valid argument. It's a logically valid inference or conclusion. Now, a logically invalid argument is called a fallacy. You hear that term fallacy or its adjective fallacious. An argument that is fallacious does not flow. It does violate the laws of logic. And I have an example for you, picking on myself. All elephants have ears. Tim has ears. Therefore, Tim is an elephant. All elephants have ears. That's premise number one. Tim has ears. It's premise number two. And then the conclusion is, therefore, Tim is an elephant. That is a fallacy. And the law of logic that's being violated here is the law of the undistributed middle. Not to get too technical here, all that says is that just because two things have one thing in common doesn't mean that they have all things in common. Okay? That's the undistributed middle. A law of logic is being violated in that, that development of an argument. That's what's called a syllogism. 
a law of logic is being violated, and so this is a logically invalid argument. So you see the difference between a logically valid and a logically invalid or fallacious argument. Okay, those are kind of obvious examples, but an argument, interestingly enough, an argument is not true or false. An argument is either valid or invalid. Well, then why in the world did we have a whole session last week on, is it true? <laughs> why would you call this series, is it true? Why would Jason get up here and, and, and just effervesce for 90-some minutes on, on truth? Well, that's the second condition of a good argument. Second condition is this. The argument must have true premises. The argument must have true premises. In that previous example, all elephants have ears, that's true. Tim has ears, that's true. Okay, you've got to have true premises. That's not enough. It's not enough to have true premises, but you've got to have those. They've got to at least be true. It doesn't uh, do any good to have a logically uh, valid argument if the premises of the argument aren't true or they can be demonstrated to be false or unnecessary. Uh, the premises of an argument are the very steps of an argument. As we said, it's a syllogism. And I have one printed uh, under this category for you where the premises... Well, look at it, and you tell me what's wrong with it. If the streets are wet, it has rained recently. That's a premise. The second premise, the streets are wet, therefore, it has rained recently. That's the conclusion. Premise number one, if the streets are wet, it's rained recently. Premise number two, the streets are wet. And then the conclusion to follow, well, therefore, it has rained recently. Now, that is a logically valid argument, but the problem is premise number one. What's wrong with it? One more than one way to make a street wet. Perhaps the fire hydrant exploded, or the sewer backed up, or the junior high kids in Awana had uh, a water balloon fight. We don't have junior high kids in Awana. Well, that's logically fallacious. Well, okay, you see what I mean? there's more than one way to make a street wet, correct? You know, the neighbor kid peed on it. I don't know. There's lots of ways to make a street wet. Um, so, premise one is potentially true but not decisively true, okay? And that really is the most important question with respect to building a good argument, to make sure that your premises are decisively true. And last week, Pastor Jason demonstrated the existence of this thing called truth. Do you remember when I objected to him at the end, when I raised my counter-arguments against the concept of absolute truth, and I said, absolute truth does not exist, he simply responded with what? Is what you're saying true? He was exactly right to do just that. And that dismantled everything else I could possibly say. So, um, here's where disagreements will, will come uh, with unbelievers. And it's also where smoke screens come too. And it's, it's important to be careful at this point. Uh, because you know how it is. If they don't like the conclusion, they, they see where your logic is going. If they don't like where the conclusion is going... Well, then you're going to get a smokescreen of arguments or responses that don't have anything to do with the argument you've just set forth. Ah, there's all hypocrites in the church. That may be the case, but that has nothing to do with the syllogism being developed here. And those emotional arguments that often get thrown out have really nothing to do with the truthfulness of the premises being developed. Okay? And you can say, hey, my argument is logically valid, and the premises are decisively true. Therefore, the conclusion does follow whether you like it or not. 
And if you don't want to buy the conclusion, you're going to have to somehow demonstrate that my, my argument is logically invalid or some of the premises are not true or something is amiss here as we've laid out this argument. Otherwise, the conclusion follows from the argument. Now, one more condition is needed. One more condition is needed uh, because sometimes the truth of a premise on, on which the whole argument may hang is itself hotly disputed and difficult to establish. And so a third condition needs to be met, and it's this. The premises must be more plausible than their negations. The premises must be more plausible than their negations. It's not enough for the premises to be possibly true. They need to be decisively true. In other words, um, if we need to have good reason for thinking that the premises are they're true, but not any reason for thinking they're true. It needs to be credible in some way, or obvious, or warranted, or supported by the evidence. And, of course, that leads to the question, well, how much evidence or how much warrant is sufficient? And that is not an easy question to answer. But one way is to require that the premise be more plausible than its negation. And by that, I mean you take the premise and you just assert it's negative, or it's contrary, or it's opposite, um, you just put not in the sentence. And so, for the examples that I gave you, Socrates is not a man. Which is more plausible? The premise that says Socrates is a man or Socrates is not a man. Okay, see what we're doing there. We're negating the premise to see which one is more plausible. Or that second one, Tim does not have ears. Well, I can see them. They're huge. Which is more plausible? The negation or the premise without the negation. The streets are not wet. Okay, you see, so that's one of the tests. And uh, that can sometimes add clarity to the plausibility or the absurdity of your premise. But in the end, our goal is to present arguments for the conclusion that God exists, arguments that are logically valid. They're based on premises that are more plausible than their negations. The premises are decisively true. And if we've done that, we will have pre presented a good argument for the existence of God. Will it be irrefutable proof? No. Will it be 100% mathematical certainty? No. That's really an unrealistic standard, quite honestly. We don't live our life in other areas with that kind of requirement. If that's the standard, then we can hardly prove anything at all. Just try it. Even Descartes, he wasn't so sure. I think they're, uh, the best thing... Descartes, the only thing he could be sure of was, were his doubts. But even then he wasn't so sure. You see the problem. And so he comes up with that, that incredible statement, I think, therefore I am. The only thing I'm sure of is my doubts, and because I'm thinking those doubts, I must exist. That was his logic. And it really changed philosophy um, at that point in history. But we do have good reasons or good arguments for the existence of God that are more plausible than their negations. And that's all you're ever claiming when you talk to an unbeliever using classical apologetics. I have good and plausible reasons for the existence of God. Now, here's the catch. Plausibility is, to some extent, a person-specific phenomenon. What's plausible to you may not be plausible to me. Some people don't want the conclusion that God exists to be true. And so they will, what he called, says in Romans chapter 1, he, they will suppress the evidence. It's not that there's, enough, there's not enough evidence. There is evidence. They just suppress it. They don't want the conclusion to be true. Um, now, for any argument, and by the way, if that happens, that doesn't mean your argument has failed. Um, if they ultimately reject the conclusion that God 
exists. That doesn't mean your argument has failed. Uh, for any argument, you can deny the conclusion so long as you're willing to pay the price of denying one of the premises. Let me say that again. For any argument, you can deny the conclusion, an argument that's logically valid and has true premises that are more plausible than their negation. You meet those conditions. You can only deny the conclusion, but you'll deny the conclusion, and the price you have to pay is to live with an absurd premise. Um, and your goal as an apologist is to make that price as high as you possibly can. Uh, J.I. Packer um, uses an illustration. He's a British theologian. He's in his 80s now, and he's, he's had a long, wonderful career as an evangelical theologian. He uses the illustration of a traveler and a balconier. A traveler is someone who is on the journey, in the trenches, walking along the way, and he's trying to discover if God exists or not, He's working really hard with an open mind to try to analyze the arguments as best he can and truly, almost like somebody looking for a lost loved one, to find any evidence that, that they're possibly here. That's the traveler. Packer also distinguishes that, though, from what he calls the balconier. And that's just somebody who's sitting way up in the balcony. I want you to think of the Muppets now. Statler and Waldorf. Remember those guys? I mean, they're just curmudgeons. They're, they have no skin in the game. They're just looking down on, on the travelers, and they're offering, offering commentary, you know, sophisticated commentary, but they really have no skin in the game. They're not, they're not looking for anything. They're not trying to analyze arguments and hope or denial that there may be a God at the end of them. Absolutely not. They're just, they're, well, they're indifferent. Sometimes they're hostile. Um, they don't want them to be there. Let me read you the words of the philosopher Thomas Nagel, He's an atheistic philosopher. Listen to this. In a moment of candor, he wrote these words. I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. That's a totally different argument from the traveler, the balconier versus the traveler. You know, this is the one who looks for loopholes and in the process winds up missing the whole picture. I think that's a good, helpful distinction. William Lane Craig, another Christian apologist, actually added something to that. And he said, he posited this. He said, it's the illustration of the skeptical dial. William Lane Craig has said, that every person has within him a skeptical dial. And we dial that dial way high when we come to conclusions that we don't like. And we dial it way down when we come to philosophies we do like and we do espouse. And we always have our hand on that dial and we can turn it up or we can turn it down. He said this, the hypocrisy of many balconiers is that when it comes to God's existence, they dial their skeptical dial up to a degree that would be totally unacceptable to them in any other area of life. If they were to apply the same sort of skepticism to ordinary life that they apply to the arguments for the existence of God, they would scarcely be able to function. So said William Lane Craig. And the interesting thing about Christian apologetics is you and I do not have our, our hand on that dial. You and I don't have our hand on anybody else's dial. They've got their hand on it. And they can turn it up or they can turn it down. And people will set it where they want to 
for their own reasons. And that's why I say the goal of apologetics is not to win an argument per se, but to make the price as high as you possibly can to deny the conclusion and demonstrate the ridiculousness of of holding on to absurd premises. For example, as it pertains to the cosmological argument, the one we're considering tonight, instead of admitting that God exists and created the universe, atheists would rather assert that the universe just popped into existence uncaused out of absolutely nothing. Rather than admitting that God exists or might exist, they'd rather just come to the conclusion and live with it, well, the universe just popped into existence out of nothing. Now, they would never, ever make such a claim in any other area of their lives. Um, They go home, you go home tonight, and there's a strange car in your driveway. Oh, it just appeared here out of nothing. Is that your first thought? No. Your first thought is, I wonder whose that is. I wonder who's here. Or how about um, a million dollars just happens to find its way into the banker's briefcase as he's walking out at 5 o'clock from the bank? Oh, I'm sorry, Your Honor. It, It just appeared. It popped into my case out of nothing. Or wives. (laughs) Um, You walk in and and there's your husband surrounded by a harem. I'm sorry, dear. They just popped into existence. You think that's going to fly? See, we don't live our life. No, it's not going to (laughs) fly. Obviously not. Um, Right now, as you sit here, you are not worried about the fact that a horse might just pop pop into existence out of thin air and, and defile your carpet. You're, you're not worried about that. Because that's not how the world works. And yet, this is the kind of logic that the atheist wants us to swallow when it comes to arguments for the existence of God and where the universe came from. For, Balca- for balconeers, arguments are at best... Arguments for the existence of God are at best games. Intellectual games. I get paid to do this. Don't be a balconeer. The promise of God is that if you seek him, you will find him. Balconeers don't hope to or expect to find God at the end of the arguments. They just make the assertion, everything has come from nothing. Stephen Hawking's new book, he says exactly that. Everything has come from nothing. Just think about that for a moment. Everything has come from nothing. I think when you get someone to make that kind of an assertion, I think you've succeeded in your argument whether they accept your conclusion or not. So, let's begin the journey, because this is not a game. Introduction to the cosmological argument. As we said, the word cosmos means... Anybody remember? What's the word word mean? Oh, do I have it printed there? (laughs) Sorry. Okay, what's it mean? (laughs) Who can read? It means world, universe, ordered system... Order out of chaos. We said it's where the word cosmetic comes from. Ladies, get up in the morning and you make (laughs) order out of chaos um, with your cosmetics. Sorry. It's just what the word means. Anyway, actually, the cosmological argument is a family of arguments seeking to demonstrate that there must be a first cause or a sufficient reason for the existence of the world. The cosmological argument is a family of arguments seeking to demonstrate that there must be a first cause or a sufficient reason for the existence of the world. Now, 
There are several of these arguments. I'm just going to give you one tonight, and we'll sort of unpack it in the time that we have. Premise number one, everything that begins to exist has a cause. Premise two, the universe began to exist. And premise three, the universe therefore has a cause. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, and therefore the universe has a cause. And once we reach the conclusion that the universe has a cause, we can then analyze what properties such a cause must have and assess its theological significance. Okay? Remember, we can only get to theism in a classical apologetic, and that's all we're trying to do. But this argument is logically ironclad. It's logically valid. There's no logical fallacies in this argument. The only question is whether the two premises are true. Are those first two premises, statement one and statement two, are they true? Are they plausible? Are they more plausible than their negation? That's, that's how this cosmological argument unfolds. Okay? Do you see how I got there? We, we discussed what an argument is, the conditions for a good argument, and, and here it is. We've, number one, we've met the first condition. It is a logically valid argument. Second, now we have, to argue, we have to look at these premises. Are they plausibly true, and are they more plausibly true than their negation? Okay, so that's our test, to look at those two statements, and if we can reasonably deduce that they're true, then we can follow on with our conclusion and see if there's any theological significance to that conclusion. Okay, are you with me so far? Are we all together? All right. Now, premise number one, everything that begins to exist has a cause. That premise seems very obvious to me, uh, but maybe that's because my skeptical dial is pretty low. I don't know. But it does seem to me that it's more plausible than its negation. Um, in other words, the negation here would be everything that begins to exist does not have a cause. Does that sound plausible? Everything that exists, everything that begins to exist does not have a cause. Does that seem reasonable? Well, that seems contrary to our experience in so many ways. But still, you hear it asserted time and time again when it comes to cosmology. And the common scientific claim is basically this. Time plus space plus chance equals everything, equals the universe. Time plus space plus chance equals the universe. But here's the problem with that. Time is a dimension. It has no causal properties. And space is, by definition, emptiness. It has no causal properties. And chance is a descriptive non-entity. It has no causal properties. Chance cannot do anything because chance isn't anything. And in order for something to act... It must be something, and chance is not anything. Chance is nothing. Now, chance is a perfectly useful word to describe mathematical possibilities and abstract realities, but they're not physical causalities. And so to say that the universe was created by chance is to say that the universe was created by nothing. What you're really saying is nothing plus nothing plus nothing equals everything. Are you buying that? I would submit to you that that's absurd. One of the most basic axioms in science is, the Latin phrase is ex nihilo, nihil fit. Out of nothing, nothing comes. Out of nothing, nothing comes. Paul Janet wrote this, Chance is a word void of any sense 
invented by our ignorance. And even David Hume, who ultimately rejected the cosmological argument, even David Hume, skeptical philosopher of a previous generation, he said this, chance is only our ignorance of real causes. That's somebody who rejected the cosmological argument. Even he admitted chance is only our ignorance of real causes. And so when we say that something is caused by chance, what we're saying is we don't know what caused it. That's really what we're saying. And so the common um, little scientific ditty, time plus space plus chance is equal to the universe, what this actually means is nothing plus nothing plus nothing equals everything. And that's ridiculous. Because as Aristotle said, somebody asked Aristotle one time to define nothingness. What, what is nothingness? He said, nothingness is that which rocks dream about. That's pretty good. I was talking to Jason about this earlier. He said, you know, Aristotle got it right most of the time. <laughs> In fact, some people say that uh, all of philosophy is just a footnote on Aristotle. Nothingness is that which rocks dream about. Now, take that which rocks dream about and try to produce something with it. Are you with me? Premise one seems obviously true to me, at least more so than its negation. So let's examine the positive evidence now for this premise. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. There's really three good reasons, I think, that this premise is warranted or decisive. First of all, it's rooted, I think, in the, necessi- uh, the necessary truth that something cannot come into being uncaused from nothing. And to suggest that things can just pop into existence from nothing is literally worse than magic. I mean, here's the ma- magician. He pulls a rabbit out of the hat. At least you got a hat. At least you got a rabbit. What this is saying is that you can pull something out of nothing. You don't need a magician, and you don't need a hat, and you don't need a rabbit. You ever see Bewitched? Remember when Endora, the mother, just appeared? Twinkle, twinkle, you know, when Samantha does her... Before she does it, mother, mother, she's looking for it. She is somewhere. She's just not seen. And so when she pops into existence seemingly out of nothing, no, she will tell you, I was with uh, Uncle Arthur on the Himalayas riding sled dogs or whatever... She didn't just pop into existence out of nothing. She was somewhere and she came here. Okay, you with me? So this assertion that something can come from nothing is literally worse than magic. This is, this is a lower form of argumentation than the directors of Bewitched. But this is what we're learning in university and paying for. And they call it science. It irritates me because I have to pay those college bills now times two. <laughs> now, secondly... If things really could come into being uncaused out of nothing, then it's inexplicable. Think about it. If things can just pop into existence out of nothing, then it's inexplicable why anything and everything don't just come into existence uncaused from nothing. Why doesn't everything come that way? Why isn't something happening like that right now? And thirdly, premise one, I think, is constantly confirmed by our experience as we see things that begin to exist brought about by prior causes. Now, in seventh grade or eighth grade or ninth grade, you probably studied biology. You got your first biology textbook, and they introduced you some, uh, to a concept called spontaneous generation. Back in the old days, prior to microscopes, it was observed that if you let meat out overnight, did I say that right? Le- let leave? I'm from Brooks County. I never know which one is right. <laughs> if you set meat out overnight, you'll get maggots the next day or some critter that, that wasn't there before. And the theory, the biological theory, many, many years ago was that, where'd they come from? Oh, they just spontaneously generated. They came into being out of nothing. Now, that theory was dismissed. You remember this lesson from biology a long time ago? Okay. 
That was obviously dismissed. With the invention of microscope, you can see, no, this doesn't happen this way. There were larvae, there were eggs, there were, I mean, these things came from somewhere, okay? Um, so the refutation of spontaneous generation in biology, physics and metaphysics never seem to have caught up with biology in that sense. So there's three reasons, I believe, positive reasons, why I think that this premise is true, plausibly true, and more true than its negation, okay? So, premise two, and we'll come back and you can argue with me in a few moments. Premise two, the universe began to exist. The universe began to exist. Now, premise two seems to me to be pretty intuitive as well, at least more so than its negation. What would its negation be? The universe did not begin to exist. Well, if the universe did not begin to exist, you basically have two options. Number one, the universe is eternal. It always existed. It was always here. There was never a time when the universe was not. It always was. And actually, Greek philosophy, parts of it, taught that, the eternality of matter. Um, you would have to, that's what you have to subscribe to. Either that, the eternality of matter, or secondly, the universe came into being out of nothing. Um, and that is contemporary, uh, contemporary naturalism. It just, it just came into being out of nothing. Now, quite honestly, folks, both of those statements are statements of faith. Did you catch that? Both of those statements. The universe is eternal. The universe came into existence out of nothing. Both of those statements are statements of faith. They were not observed. So that puts the atheistic naturalist in the same boat as any theist. You follow me? Follow my reasoning there. What is the philosophical and scientific evidence for such a claim? that the universe began to exist. Well, I think premise two, the universe began to exist, can be supported by both philosophical argument and scientific argument. The philosophical argument seeks to show that there cannot have been an infinite regress of past events. Now, I'll slow down here. This is almost a mind-bender, but I'm sure you can get it. The philosophical argument seeks to show that there cannot have been an infinite regress of past events. In other words, the series of past events prior to where we are right now, the series of past events must be finite and have had a beginning. Because if, it, if they didn't, we never would have gotten to the present moment. Now, let me say that again. The philosophical argument here seeks to show that there cannot have been an infinite regress of past events. In other words, there must be a finite number of past events uh, that had a beginning. Otherwise, we never would have gotten to the present moment. Or to say it another way, an actually infinite series of past events could never completely elapse. Since the series of past events had obviously elapsed, getting us to this moment, the number of past events must be finite. Okay? Just kind of nod if you're halfway there. Does, it, does that make sense? If you've got an infinite number of past events, you never would have gotten to the present moment. Because infinite, by definition, is they go on and on and on and on. Okay? So there must be a finite number of prior events to get you to the present moment. All right. Hang in there. Uh, that's the philosophical argument. And we could talk a lot about uh, um, infinity, uh, the mathematician David Hilbert, no relation, <laughs> has done a lot of work with quantities of infinity. We'll set that aside for tonight.
But there's some scientific evidence to consider as well for premise two, that the universe began to exist. And it's based on the expansion of the universe and the thermodynamic properties of the universe as we know them to be. Now, believe it or not, at this point, Christian apologists will actually piggyback on the Big Bang Theory. Now, that may surprise you, but it's true, they do. Not because they necessarily believe all aspects of it, please understand, nor do I. But they piggyback on it because there are some useful elements to it. According to credible astronomy, the universe seems to be expanding in all directions. And that would seem to suggest a central point from which the expansion has begun. You've seen an explosion, you've seen car chases, and when it goes kaboom, it goes everywhere, right? Okay? Um, hence the term Big Bang. So, according to the Big Bang model of uh, the origin of the universe, physical space and time, along with all the matter and energy in the world, in the universe, it came into being at a point in the past, they say, I don't buy this, but they say 13.7 billion years ago, and they call it, there's a little diagram here, if time goes this direction and space goes that direction, that single, that initial cosmological singularity, they say that all the time, space, energy, every, the matter, everything was in one single point. They call it a cosmological singularity, and then it just exploded. And that's why the, the universe appears to be expanding in all different directions. Okay? Now, prior to that initial singularity, nothing existed. And what makes the Big Bang so appealing to some Christian apologists is that it represents the origin of the universe from literally nothing. Let me quote for you the physicist PCW Davies. He puts it like this. The coming into the being, the coming into being of the universe as discussed in modern science is not just a matter of imposing some sort of organization upon a previous incoherent state, but literally the coming into being of all physical things from nothing. In other words, at a point in time, out of nothing, here came what they call a singular cosmological point, a, a singularity, a cosmological singularity, and that just exploded, and that's where everything came from. In other words, it had a beginning point. It started. It's not eternal. It's not eternal in the negative direction. It had a beginning. Of course, cosmologists have proposed alternate theories over the years, and, and they've, they've tried to avoid the conditions at the original moment and, and the timing of it and all of that. But setting that aside for a moment, one cosmologist puts it like this. He put it rather bluntly. He said this, It is said that an argument is what convinces reasonable men, and proof is what it takes to convince an unreasonable man. With the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There's no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. In other words, what he's saying here is there's a moment in time when it all began. That corresponds with the biblical witness, in case you didn't realize it. That there's a beginning, prior to Genesis 1, there was not a universe as we know it. Now, not only if you want to go Big Bang cosmology, and Christians don't like that, and I understand that, but you, there's even another way to argue this, and that's with the law of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics it's the law of entropy. We talked about it, uh, actually I mentioned it last, uh, last Wednesday night. That law says this, ordered systems tend toward chaos without the introduction of new energy. 
Ordered systems tend toward chaos. They break down without the introduction of new energy. Your car engine is like that. Your body is like that. You don't eat. You don't introduce new energy. What happens? You break down. Now, the second law of thermodynamics predicts that, follow me here, in a finite amount of time, the universe will grind down to a cold, dark, weakened, lifeless state. So, in a finite amount of time, the universe will grind down to a cold, dark, weakened, lifeless state. But if the universe has existed in eternity past and there was no beginning point, it should have already petered out by now. Did you follow me? Given the law of thermodynamics, ordered systems tend toward chaos without the introduction of new energy. They peter out. If there was no beginning point to the universe, it eternally existed, the, law of second therm, uh, the, the second law of thermodynamics said it should have petered out by now. But it hasn't petered out yet. It's still here and, and apparently going strong. And so many scientists have concluded on the philosophical and scientific evidence that the universe must have begun to exist in a, a finite amount of time ago. Whenever that was on the timeline, it happened in a moment in time. And now it's in the process of winding down. So, I would submit to you that premises one, or premise one is decisively true. And everything that, everything that begins to exist has a cause. That's decisively true. Premise two, the universe began to exist. That also is decisively true. And so it follows from the premises to the conclusion, the universe has a cause. The universe has a cause. Now, interestingly enough, the prominent atheistic philosopher Daniel Dennett argues that the universe has a cause, but he thinks that the cause of the universe is the universe itself. He actually says that, and he gets paid to say that, that the universe is its own cause. Let's talk about that. He's, he's serious, and he, say, he calls it, and I quote, See, I'm just not afraid to read. I used to be afraid to read these guys. I'm not anymore. He, he calls it this, the, the, ult, the ultimate bootstrapping trick. The universe created itself. And I get harassed by the scientific community for believing in miracles. He's allowed to say that? The ultimate bootstrapping trick. And he's one of the new atheists, one of the rabid atheists who's out there on the trail. And some of his works are out there and get quoted all the time. Now, Dennett's view is plainly nonsense. I mean, let's not get emotional here. Let's stay thoughtful. Notice that he's not saying here that the universe is self-caused in the same way that it's always existed. No, Dennett agrees that the universe had an absolute beginning, but claims that the universe brought itself into beginning. But that is clearly impossible. Because in order to create itself, the universe would have to have already existed. It would have to exist before it existed. It would have had to predate itself. It would have had to be before it was. It would have had, had to be and not be at the same time. That's absurd. That's self-contradictory. Did you follow that? Dennett's view, I think, is therefore logically incoherent. The cause of the universe must therefore be a transcendent cause beyond the universe itself. So, here's the question. We'll end on this. What properties must such a cause of the universe possess? If we can buy that conclusion that a first cause exists, what must be the properties of such a first cause? Well, as the cause of time and space, the cause itself must transcend time and space. 
and therefore exist timelessly and non-spatially. Let me say that again. It's an important point because I'm going to develop the argument from there. As the cause of time and space, the cause itself must be outside of or transcend time and space, and so therefore itself is timeless and non-spatial. And this transcendent first cause must therefore be changeless and immaterial because anything that is timeless must also be unchanging and anything that is changeless must be non-physical and immaterial because everything is always changing at the subatomic level or the atomic level even or the cellular level. So this cause must be without a beginning, must be uncaused, and at least in the sense of lacking any prior causal conditions, there, because there cannot be an infinite regress of causes. Otherwise, he never would have gotten to the present moment. So, there's your list. Uncaused, beginningless, changeless, immaterial, timeless, spaceless, and obviously, I think it's obvious, powerful. Powerful. Nothing in the universe has ever created anything. Demonstrably so. And there is a philosophical principle... Uh, Occam's razor, without getting into all of that, philosophers like to talk about Occam's razor. It's the philosophical principle that uh, states that we should not multiply causes beyond necessity. And so that would shave away any other cause because only one, re- one cause is required to explain the effect. In other words, you don't need many causes, you just need one. I, I would call it monocausalism instead of polycausalism. Some of you know where I'm going with this. <laughs> Monocausalism as opposed to polycausalism. And perhaps it goes without saying that this cause, this entity, has to be uh, imaginally, uh, unimaginably powerful, um, if not omnipotent, because it started the universe without any prior material or cause. And finally, and maybe most remarkably, I would suggests that a transcendent first cause, now I can't prove this, but I can suggest it for good reason, that that first cause is plausibly personal. Plausibly personal. Here's why I say that. The only entities that can possess such properties as timelessness and immateriality are either minds or abstract quantities such as numbers, the number seven, the square root of two, or non-material things like the laws of logic. Um, Such things exist by the necessity of their own nature. But here's the deal. A mind, an immaterial mind, or numbers, abstract principles like the laws of logic. Okay, here, this is fascinating. Abstract objects don't cause anything. The number seven has never caused anything. Except on Sesame Street, when it was, you know, this episode of Sesame Street brought to you by the number seven. Remember that? Some of you are too young to remember that, but numbers don't cause anything. They just are. Ah, but minds can stand in a causal relationship. A mind can cause a thought. Most of your minds can cause a thought. (laughs) No reason I'm looking over here. (laughs) Uh, I hope my mind can cause a thought, but the number seven, a non-material abstract mathematical quantity can't cause anything. A mind can cause something. It can cause a thought. And so I would submit to you that the transcendent cause of the origin of the universe must be an unembodied mind. 
Now, amazingly, we're almost done. Then we'll take some incoming fire. <laughs> amazingly, the famous atheist Richard Dawkins addresses this particular version of the cosmological, the cosmological argument that I just laid out here, these, these two premises and the conclusion. He actually addressed this version of the cosmological argument, and remarkably, he doesn't dispute either premise. He can't. And so he doesn't. What he does is dispute the theological significance of the conclusion. And here's what he said. I have it printed for you. Dawkins says this. Even if we allow the dubious luxury of arbitrarily conjuring up a terminator to an infinite regress and giving it a name. In other words, if we go back only so far and just stop there, terminate it, and give that, that, that first cause a name... There's absolutely no reason, says Dawkins, to endow that terminator with any of the properties normally ascribed to God. Omnipotence, all power. Omniscience, all knowledge. Goodness, creativity of design. To say nothing of such human attributes as listening to prayers, forgiving sins, and reading innermost thoughts. That's his response. He could Notice, he could not dispute either premise. So he didn't. He just disputed the theological significance of the conclusion. And I think William Lane Craig has a fascinating response to that. Now, William Lane Craig, I've used his name several times now. William Lane Craig is one of the, one of the best Christian apologists working today. And he's actually ordained in our denomination. He's ordained in the missionary church. He's a member of a missionary church. Okay, that, that's, that's not overly important. <laughs> I just throw it out for free. He's one of us. And he has said this. He, he's done a lot of work, by the way, with Ravi Zacharias. Uh, he's just out there a lot. He's published a lot of books, um, and then they're very well done. And I'm sure we'll have occasion to show you some of his clips, too, of, of him at work. But he said this in response to Dawkins. Apart from the opening dig, this is an amazingly con concessionary statement. Dawkins doesn't deny that the argument successfully demonstrates the existence of an uncaused, beginningless, changeless, immaterial, timeless, spaceless, and unimaginably powerful personal creator of the universe. He merely complains that this cause hasn't been shown to be omnipotent, omniscient, good, creative, uh, of design, listening to prayers, forgiving of sins, reading innermost thoughts. And, and Craig says, so what? The argument doesn't aspire to, approve, uh, to prove such things. It would be a bizarre form of atheism, indeed one not worthy of the name atheism, that conceded that there exists an uncaused, beginningless, changeless, immaterial, timeless, spaceless, and unimaginably powerful personal creator of the universe who may, for all we know, also possess further properties listed by Dawkins. In other words, he's really unmasking the smokescreen Dawkins is throwing up here. The cosmological argument never sets out to prove those things. It can't. And we Christians admitted as much. More is needed. All a, all a classical apologetic argument can do is get you to theism, and that gets you at best Judaism, Christianity, or Islam. The argument never aspires to make all the rest of those claims. And Craig rightly says, so what? That's not what we were trying to prove. And really, he's wiping away the fog generated by the Dawkins smoke machine. So I would submit to you, on the basis of the argument's conclusion here, we can infer that a personal creator of the universe exists who is uncaused, without beginning, changeless, immaterial, timeless, spaceless, and unimaginably powerful. Christians call him God. The first cause is God. And one cause is enough, according to Occam's razor, 
Monotheism will do. Polytheism is unnecessary. God, we worship him. And we worship him in part because he created us, not we ourselves. And that's what the Bible says. Okay, let me stop there. Um, that's a lot to drink in. That's like drinking at a fire hydrant, I think. Um, you're going to get a... Um, all right, Jason, Pastor Jason's going to get a... Um, a microphone, I think he's going to put me on the hot seat, kind of like this is turnaround is fair play, like I had grilled him last week. So um, that is one version of the cosmological argument in a nutshell. So questions, questions of clarification, or arguments, hey, I'm not buying something you said there on your way to this conclusion. Hello. All right. You want to start? You want to get the is ball rolling? Is this the right one? one? Is this the right one? Yep, I'm on. Okay. Had green tapes, so I wasn't sure. Um, I guess my first question would have to be with your, uh, what you have here as the first premise. Yes. You state that everything that begins to exist has a cause. And, uh, and I, 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 I liked your uh, sarcastic analogy or sarcastic uh, example of a horse falling down on someone's carpet there. But I, th- I think that's a little bit uh, putting the horse before the cart there. Um, I think that's... Um, that's a little uh, out there. I mean, according to quantum physics, scientists have discovered that such things as electrons pop in and out of existence um, but on their own, and they seem to come from absolutely nowhere, uh, and they seem to create themselves from nothing. So, I mean, obviously a horse would create a lot of, um, uh, a lot of electrons, and we would say, yes, that would be needed for time, and time plus space plus chance would be needed to create a horse, but for the most elemental parts of our universe, such as electrons, there's good scientific uh, basis to say that they come from nothing. Okay, uh, thank you for your comment. I do wonder at the end of the series if we're still going to be friends. <laughs> wow, we're getting to... Wait till uh, question two. <laughs> um, a horse is a horse, of course. Um, I think Pastor Jason is raising the issue here of quantum physics. Um, that is a relatively new field of study, and, and I, relatively, it's been around for decades, but it's relatively new. And there is, there is, I will concede, there is a phenomenon that's been observed at the subatomic level, where in quantum vacuums, it appears that positrons and some electrons just appear seemingly out of nowhere, collide, and disappear and reappear somewhere else. It is almost like bewitched at the subatomic level. That seems to be what's happening. My response to that is, is simply this. Uh, the fact that they disappear doesn't mean they cease to exist. They cease to exist in our perception. And the fact that they seem to just appear doesn't mean to suggest necessarily that they appeared out of nothing. They appeared out of our range of sight. Here's why I say that. A quantum vacuum, most, the textbook definition of a vacuum, not a Hoover, I mean in science, a vacuum, most people understand a vacuum to mean total nothingness, a field of nothingness. That is incorrect. A quantum vacuum is actually a sea, wherever its boundaries are, it's actually a sea of fluctuating energy. And any particles in that sea of fluctuating energy are of necessity unstable, and they do appear, underscore the word appear, to disappear and come into existence out of nothing. The state of quantum... There are several theories as to why this thing happens. 
Um, and without getting overly technical and uh, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle and, and other things like there's basically, let me just give you two broad approaches. One that would say there's a reason for this and uh, another that would say there is no reason. Um, and if there is no reason, then I think we can all agree that Newtonian physics has just been stood on its head. And the jury is still out. But one, Neil, Neil Bohr, uh, Niels Bohr is one who would say that these things do just appear out of nothing. That's his theory, yet to be proved. But his theory is that these things just come from nowhere, and then they appear somewhere else. Not everybody agrees with that. One who disagreed with that theory was Albert Einstein himself, who said, and this is the context in which he said it. You often hear this quoted, and we, we never get to the context, but this is the context in which he said God would not play dice. He had a better theory. You already know that there is a relationship between energy and matter. It's a very simple equation. E equals mc squared. Energy equal mass times the speed of light squared. There's a relationship between energy and matter. And it came, out, it came to us through Einstein in that famous equation, E equals mc squared. There's a relationship between energy and matter. And it is possible to go from one to the other. Now, is that what's happening at, at the quantum level? We don't know. My hunch is that this is a subatomic version of what biology discovered centuries ago. Spontaneous generation doesn't happen. What I think is going on here at the subatomic level is that our instruments have not quite caught up with our observation. The, thing, the fact that these things go off our radar don't mean they go off completely or, or cease to exist or, and then just re uh, reappear and come into being. That is a conclusion without evidence. And that's why you will find uh, sub, uh, subatomic physicists will actually, th there are several theories, and that is only one. Niels Bohr's is only one theory that they just come into being out of nothing and then uh, cease to be and then come into being again. So I would say look at the broad discipline here. They're fighting about this right now. Now, I will concede that if that happens, that something can come from nothing, that would be pretty significant, and that would put a major hole in my argument. However, I don't think it would be devastating because quantum vacuums are, by definition, unstable. That's why these things seem to disappear. But the universe has, it didn't come into existence and just disappear and come in again and disappear. It's been here for at least, by the scientists count, 13.7 billion years. So why did this come into being out of nothing and stay around and be much more stable than anything you see at the subatomic level? That would be my my response to that. A conclusion without evidence, I think you said, and that, and that being based on scientific discoveries that we have. Well, my question, my next question then would be that um, you did mention a couple times about scientific discoveries and how they've changed, radically changed how the, uh, how the world has seen things. Um, you even mentioned the, the meat maggot thing. Um, you know, leaving the meat out and you get maggots. Um, the meat maggot thing. The meat maggot thing. <laughs> well, my, my, see, my problem is, though, um, as you said, you know, obviously the, for the people back then, seeing a piece of meat, seeing maggots the next day, they obviously say, wow, these magnets came from nowhere. Can't the same, um, but we know now, much later down the road, we look back and say, obviously, uh, new scientific discoveries have shown, no, truly, maggots do not come from nowhere. They were just not there. As you said, we don't have some of the equipment that we need to see and all the scientific discoveries which would enable us to know the actual elements that are really there. Cannot the same actually be said for the beginning of the universe as well? 
Um, we, we would look now and say, surely this cannot come from nothing. But could it possibly be that we just don't have the scientific discoveries enough? As a matter of fact, I believe, I believe it is Richard Dawkins who has said, has just simply hung his hat on the fact that, you know, we, we just don't have the scientific discoveries yet. And once we do, then it will all be proved nothing. Um, you know, your God will go the way of the maggot, basically, because we, we can't figure out, uh, we've now figured out through science what's going on. And I mean, and you brought up Occam's, ra- Occam's razor. Wouldn't that be the simplest most plausible fact whatsoever, rather than positing this incomprehensible uh, God out, way out there somewhere, which we seem to be coming with a conclusion without evidence, that um, simply science that we have now, or eventually will have, will be able to prove that, uh, yes, there, it didn't come from nothing, it came from something, or that it, it does come from nothing. Was there a question in there? I, I, did you see all the fog? <laughs> um, that was good. Um, where to begin on that one? Did you notice, first of all, that the question itself had an origin? And the origin of that question was a mind, which is an unseen quantity, but it's real. It's a non-material, unseen quantity, and it's real, and a thought produced, caused a question. And so I just want you to see the bigger framework here. I'm responding to a question that came into being, and you didn't see it. And I don't think Brother Jason would want us to conclude that his mind is a nothing. Some already do. Now, to the question itself, Occam's razor is simply a philosophical principle that says don't multiply causes unnecessarily. In other words, if you've got one sufficient cause, you don't need two or three or four. Uh, and, and that stands... Uh, We only need one. And Dawkins is admitting we don't know what that cause is, saying we don't know what it is. So he doesn't have one. Therefore, he should not appeal to Occam's razor. That would be part of my response. Uh, The other about the unknowability, I think the analogy stands between the meat and the maggots. And what we're seeing at the quantum level, at the subatomic level, these uh, fluctuating energy vacuums, We don't have the instruments to determine exactly what's happening. So the burden of proof, I think, is to get better, uh, is on those who would say they appear out of nothing because we've got no other correspondence in nature where that happens. So the burden of the proof must be on those who will say they come from nothing and then demonstrate that through instrumentation. Just as we found uh, an appropriate instrumentation to debunk the notion of spontaneous generation, I am confident that as this discipline progresses and grows, we will find proper instrumentation to bunk Niels Bohr's thesis that these quarks can come into being out of nothing. Uh. (laughs) Other questions, comments? Do you have your phone on you? Oh, you know what? (laughs) I don't. Um, Are we saying... (laughs) Is it back there? Well, that's a premise that's easily falsifiable. Uh, <laughs> I don't have my phone it with it. There? It's pardon me. Is it back in your office? I don't know. <laughs> I think it disappeared. Well, do you want to see? I'm so sorry. Um, do you have yours with you? I do, but oh, not the not the one that we have on the, okay. for the screen. I'm there, so though. sorry. Uh, what happened was the printer, and this has happened. This is the third week now we've done this. Every single week, we've had some sort of crisis. And I think that's a spiritual reality going on there. Um, 
because this is tremendously important stuff that we're doing here. I don't know that, I'm not saying we're doing it well, I'm just saying it's tremendously important. So um, pray for us, okay? <laughs> yes, Josh. Okay, uh, the one question that I texted you, but since you don't have your phone, <laughs> now I'm forced to talk. Cyberspace, the world of nothingness. <laughs> now I'm recorded on a podcast. Okay. Great. All right. I, anyways, um, it says, my question is, earlier you had talked about um, the universe getting, getting energy to keep going based off of, was it the second law of thermodynamics? Um, what do you, un, uh, non, I guess you could say, uh, theists or scientists or scholars say gives energy to keep the universe going besides what you talked about, the bootstrap idea. Yeah. Um, <laughs> isn't that a fascinating comment? Uh, the, uh, the magical bootstraps of uh, Daniel Dennett. And, and one of the, one of the frustrating things about reading something like that from somebody who's who seen to be scientifically credible is that a statement like that, if I make it as a theist, I'm just written off. And that's just fundamentally unfair. Uh, what, keeps, what keeps the universe going? Uh, Colossians, in Paul, and now, now I'm going to be presuppositional. My Christian answer would be um, from Hebrews chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1. All things are held together through the word of his power, even at the cellular level. I remember in chemistry class, um, our, I just, I, as the, uh, as the teacher was, was going through the various parts of an atom, I asked, okay, if that's the charge here and that's the charge here, why didn't this thing just fly apart? Why do atoms not just fly apart? And his answer was, well, we're not sure, but scientists have postulated something called atomic glue. Uh, atomic glue. And they, see, they get away with that stuff. Um, why is the theory of atomic glue any better than my quotation of Hebrews chapter 1, all things are held together by the word of his power, Colossians chapter 1, in him all things are held together. Um, I would say that's equally plausible. Now, it would appear that the universe is running out. It will peter out, and there's some scripture that would say so. Um, and eventually it will uh, come to ruin, but it will be remade. Actually, in the Christian new heavens and new earth, what you have is a picture of the, the law of the second law of thermodynamics in part being reversed and totally... It, not only obliterated, but reversed. And all things are made new. And, and one of the things that's so stunning about that from a scientific standpoint is that the best, everything we know falls apart. Cars fall apart. Food decays. Um, <laughs> uh, the Malibubu is the Malabaibai uh, because of the second law of thermodynamics. The, uh, there is an interplay between mass and energy, and Einstein demonstrated that. Um, but the universe is running out. It is petering out. So what's keeping it going? Uh, Jesus. Atomic glue is holding it together, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. You've got... You've got an excellent point. Um, those laws are part of this realm. They operate within this realm. So something outside that realm, independent of all that's in the realm, has to be the first cause. So by appealing to anything in this realm to debunk the notion of its own existence, is a, to use Jason's phrase from last week, is, is a self-refuting statement. 
I would, I would concur, absolutely. Yes? beginning and a finite end, then where did God come from if he is not finite? Yes. Good. Good question. This is the second, probably, probably the second most common objection raised against the cosmological argument. If you're saying, if, you're, uh, if your premise is that everything has a cause, then what caused God? And you've had that question from your child at bedtime, tucking them in, reading them, but where did, mommy, where did God come from? Notice that that is not my premise number one. My premise one does not say everything has a cause. Premise one says what? Everything that begins to exist has a cause. God, by definition, did not ever begin. He's eternal. And I, now, if that, are, that is sometimes called special pleading, which is a, a, a fallacy, a, an argument, a, a, a violation of the laws of logic. That special pleading, just give me one exception. But I would say no, not necessarily. I also talked about the mind, and I talked about abstract mathematical quantities, and I said this. Some things exist by the necessity of their own nature. Some things exist by the necessity of their own nature. The number seven um, exists by the necessity. Nothing caused the number seven within this realm. It just is. Um, And I would say that God exists by the necessity of his own nature. So notice carefully, premise number one does not say everything has a cause. It says everything that begins has a cause. God is not someone who has begun. Um, God is the cause, not the effect. So every effect has a cause, but God is not an effect. God is the cause. So that's how I would respond to that. I'm not sure if that was satisfactory, but that's how I would respond to it. And it's a very good question. Um, you're probably going to rip me apart here. <laughs> we don't do that here. With gentleness and respect. Right? You, you, made, you made a statement that there's three things that are nothing. Space, time, chance. I would... I would probably come back to you and say space and time, they, they do exist. They are real things. They're not nothing. Einstein proved that. He also proved that space, he's proved Newton wrong, and he proved that gravity is the bending of space and time. He also proved that you can get out of time, right? Time is a created thing. Well, and to me, that's why, <laughs> I'm sorry? Hallelujah, let's get on with it. Let's get out of time. Right. You, you, if you hit the speed of light, you're outside of time. Yes. Um, that is kind of my answer to how can God be eternal? God can be eternal because time is created yes. by God. Is that correct? I would say yes. Here's, let me go back and, and restate what I actually said. I'm sure I uh, yeah, and, and that's possible because I was gone fast even though I was trying to go slow. Let's make sure I get it all in. Here's what I said. Time is a dimension. It has no causal properties. Space has no causal properties. And chance has no causal properties. Okay, so I didn't say that those things were not real, or I didn't say that they don't exist. What I said is they don't have causal properties. And so when you put three entities together that have no causal properties, you can't suddenly come up with a cause. Time plus space plus chance equals everything. That's fundamentally self-refuting because those, those entities 
do not have causal properties. You want to follow up? When I, say, when I say it doesn't have a causal property, what I'm saying is it can't cause anything to happen. That's what I mean. I'm not saying it doesn't have an originator. I'm saying it itself doesn't have causal ability. Uh, again, the number seven. The number seven cannot cause anything to happen. It just is. Oh, that's all right. This, that's fine. Because this is what you're going to... Well, we will stop it of necessity. <laughs> The necessity of its own nature, my clock says. <laughs> Just that, that point, this may be a minute or even second. That point that space and time don't cause anything, I, I, I would say that I don't think that's Okay. Space and time cause gravity. Um, the, you're going to have to demonstrate that. that. That they themselves, those entities, cause that. Uh, but even further than that, chance, because chance is often the third element of that equation. That chance of the randomness. That, you know, given the right conditions, this primordial soup with that primordial soup, bang, you know, that, that's, you don't need a torch paper coming out of the singularity to cause the bang because the conditions were right in that singularity. Now, notice, where did the singularity come from? That's an unanswered question in naturalistic cosmology. But I would say that chance, by definition, is nothing. It is a mathema it's an abstract. I agree with that. Okay. So the, the burden of proof then would be to demonstrate that space and, and time, that time itself as a dimension can cause something, like the number seven can cause something. Okay. Yeah. I just had a quick question. Um, along with premise two with a singularity and thermodynamics, I once heard a theory that the universe is cyclical, where all the mass and energy then compresses into the singularity and then a new universe is birthed out of out of that interaction, and I was just wondering, in in your research for this, yeah. does that have anything? Various theories about the universe being curved upon itself, um, and that the thing itself can produce a something else, but that only pushes the problem back. Where did the original singularity come from? We still have, we still don't have an explanation for that, and an atheist will want to say we don't need one, or that it's uh, some naturalistic cause, and they they shun a first cause creator, where a theist would say, isn't it obvious? Uncaused, timeless, omnipotent, and all the rest of it, it seems to point to the, the biblical understanding of the creator. Okay, I, one more, and then we do want to let you go. No, I, think, I think that's about it. I just wanted to add yeah. one thing. I think it's important to remember, though, that uh, with this, we're not uh, the cosmological argument, at least in this first premise, is not in and of itself a complete proof for the existence of God. Um, it at least posits the possibility um, of having a first cause and or puts forth the plausibility of having a first cause as well. So in other words, uh, the atheist can't remove God from the table. This, uh, this proof at least shows you can't just throw God off the table right away. It's, it's, and this, along with, a couple, with several other proofs, create a cumulative case to say the most plausible, uh, the most rational, and the best understanding of how we got where we are, of who we are, why we're here, and how things are, are working is the existence of a, created, of a creator, a personal loving God, as we see in biblical theism. Okay. Thank you, Pastor Jason. We will hang around and talk a little bit if you'd like to. This was far better than any Phillies game. God bless you. Have a good evening. <laughs>